If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and our text this morning will be verses 9 through 12. Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12 is our text this morning. And this is following the, the warning that we looked at last week. And just by way of reminder, in, in seeing the severity of the warning, what gives us pause is that we were warned this in verse 4 that it's impossible. And in verse 6, for those that have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And we looked at that warning, what it meant and what it didn't mean. And it's one of those warnings that when you hear it, it, it shakes you really to your core. And I think that that's what the uh, meaning of it is, and that's what it's supposed to do, is cause us to self-examination. And so when we look at verses 9 through 12 this morning, it's following that warning that was given with a word of encouragement. And so I want you to see that the warning that comes is followed by encouragement, and it's a needed encouragement that comes in the form of exhortation. In other words, this encouragement comes with instructions of how we are to live and truly what the Christian life is. We see here in this text how the one that is in Christ, how the one in Christ lives their life as a fruit of their salvation, how that contributes to their assurance, and so we're encouraged in the text this morning to press on. In fact, that has been the continual exhortation of Hebrews is to press on, to move forward, to keep growing in the faith. And in this, what we see in this word of encouragement is also the marks of what a Christian is. What does a Christian look like? When the world sees a Christian what is it should, that they should see? And for you and I in a congregation of believers, what is it that we should experience in living in communion and fellowship with one another in the church? What should be our common experience that we share with one another? So let us hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case... Beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. Right off the bat, we see that this is an encouraging passage of Scripture. Again, it's following that warning, but it begins by addressing them for the first and only time in the book of Hebrews, as beloved. And that comes after this harsh warning. He calls them beloved. 
He wants to, in other words, as he warned them of falling away and saying, for those that have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. After he has said that of them and given them this warning, it's as if he then says, but I don't believe that's true of you. I don't believe that you're going to be the ones that fall away. I don't believe that you're going to fall away to where it's impossible to restore you. And so in other words, he wants to think the best of them, though they are in danger, though they are facing temptation of walking away, he wants to believe the best of them that the gospel has actually taken root in their life. And if the gospel has taken root in their life, they are truly regenerate. They will not fall away. And that's what he wants to believe of them. So he calls them beloved. I want you to notice, he says, though we speak in this way, though we speak in this way, he goes on to say, yet in your case, beloved. So notice what he's done here. He's given this harsh warning. Again, it's impossible for those who have fallen away to be restored to repentance, though we speak in this way. He's given a warning, and then he follows it up with encouragement. You know, a preacher must warn the congregation at times. A preacher must call the flock to self-examination because Scripture does that. And if you're faithfully dealing with the text, you have to faithfully call a congregation to self-examination at times. But it can't just stay there. And that's where we learn an important lesson that comes directly from this text, is the the full counsel of God is not just warning about the impending wrath of God. The full counsel of God is also to say, but though we speak in this way, we think of better things concerning you. You know, there's there's a tendency for... Preachers to be one or the other, where it's just warning and warning in these very heavy-handed, convicting sermons. And I, I actually find that people tend to respond to those more. And then when you encourage them and tell them they've been set free in Christ, you don't get quite the same response. And so I think that there's this tendency for preachers to want to come in with those heavy things and and they, they come down hard, but that's not the pattern of Scripture, is it? The pattern of Scripture is also to give encouragement. The pattern of Scripture is to encourage the saints, and through that encouragement of the saints, you also exhort them. That is the full counsel of God's Word. It is not only warning of God's wrath, but also saying, but you're in Christ. You've been set free. You are beloved. That's the full counsel of God's Word. You know, I think that sometimes people want to hear those harder sermons. I know that that may sound opposite of what we often See in churches that tickle the ears and just make you feel just good. But I think there's also big segments of Christianity that just want to be told law, 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 and law, and law. Not because people like to be told what to do, but they like to be told what to do so they can know how they can achieve something. 
And so, in other words, the warning here is to get away from legalistic preaching. And I think that that's what we see in the text here, and this is why he calls them beloved. There was a temptation for this Jewish audience, for these Hebrews, to turn back to the Old Covenant. They were looking back to the temple. They were looking back to the sacrifices. There was that a temptation for them to abandon Christ. But he does not believe it applies to them. He doesn't believe that they're actually going to follow through with abandoning Christ. He believes that they will persevere. This is why he says, we feel sure. That means this is, I'm persuaded. He's convinced of the validity of their faith. He is convinced that they are truly in Christ, though they're facing the temptation of turning from Christ. Why does he believe this? Well, he says this, we are persuaded or we feel sure of better things, now notice this, that belong to salvation. He's speaking to them, and he's speaking of specifically salvation and the better things that are accompanying salvation. So that is to say that he believes they are saved, and that there are things that come as a result of salvation. Notice what he says. We feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. So there are things, he's, he's sure that they're saved, and he is saying that there are things that come as a result of our salvation. Now, why is it that he has gone from warning them? The whole entire letter of Hebrews is about the preeminence of Christ and how Christ is greater than the Old Covenant. And he has been warning after warning after warning. And then here, he calls them beloved. He says that they're saved. Why is it that he's become so confident and believes better things of them beyond the warnings? Well, the text tells us they bear the marks of Christians. In other words, Christians look a certain way. Christians act a certain way. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, Christians are light. Christians are salt. Those aren't things that we're told to try to be. We're not told to be light. We're not told to try to be light. We're told we are light. That's what we are as Christians. And so there's certain things that accompany, there's certain things that belong to salvation itself. And the things that belong to salvation is perseverance. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, that those that are in Christ will persevere to the end. All those that the Father has given to the Son will come to Him, and the Son will raise on the final day. That is the perseverance we believe the Bible teaches. And that's the overarching summation of verses 10 through 12, is the Christian will persevere. And out of that, we begin to see several marks of what the Christian looks like. 
You notice in verse 10 what it reads, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Verse 10 tells us right out of the gate, there are some things that you have been doing that are the fruit of your salvation. There have been some characteristics of your life that are visible to all people. Salvation has taken place in your life and now fruit from that is manifesting itself in how you treat one another. The whole point of verse 10 is that God sees your life. He does not forget your work, which assumes that the congregation was doing what? Work. They're bearing fruit. They were being faithful. They were living as Christians. They were living as the light that Christ says they are. And specifically, it says they were serving the saints. Their particular focus was on the church. Their particular focus was on how they lived with one another. And that is qualified as their service to the Lord. The Lord does not forget your works. He does not overlook your work. Now, this text has been used historically as a, as a proof text, if you will, that our works merit God's favor. In fact, some have argued for that. That this is a proof text that, well, if I work, God merits that work. That's not actually what the text says, even though that's how people sometimes use it, because the text is actually connected to verse 9, which speaks of our what? Our salvation. What flows from our salvation is what? Works. In other words, we can't say that our works are the foundation of of our salvation, but rather our salvation is the foundation of our works. So what flows from salvation? What is the cause of good works? How can a work even be called good? Well, these things flow from the salvation, from the gift that we have in Christ. And we have to grasp two things about this. The first is that our good works, while pleasing to God because He commanded them, they do not earn His favor. All of our righteous works are but righteous, are but righteous rags before God, filthy rags. So none of our good works bring pleasure to God in earning His favor. In fact, we're told simply this. That's what's expected of you. If you do a good work, what do you earn for that? Nothing. That's what you were called to do. That's what we're supposed to do. The second thing is that Christians, not only can they not earn God's favor as they're expected, Christians do good works. Christians do good works. By the way, we love the children in this church. And we're totally happy to hear children crying in a service. Amen? Amen. We're called to do good works. And while they do not earn God's favor, 
We are certainly called to do them. And we are told that they are actually the fruit of our salvation. And even here, it comes as a proof to why they're called beloved. Notice the connection. He calls them beloved. And he says, why does he, why does he call them beloved? Because God sees what you're doing. And if God sees what they're doing, obviously the author knows what they're doing as well. It's something tangible. It was something they were doing that could be seen. So what does the work look like? The first thing I want you to notice from verse 10 is this, is it's a love for God. So you might say the first tangible Mark of a Christian, according to this text, because if you look in other texts, you see other marks of Christian. The first, the first of, um, characteristic or the first mark is this is love, and specifically love for God. The text tells us this work here is directly related to their love for His name. Notice what he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love. Where is the love shown? What's the object of their love? The love that you have shown for His name. Now, shown means that this is something that they have been doing, something that they had started, and they continued to do. Whatever they did... Whatever this work was, before we get to what defining that work is, they have shown this, it's taken place, they're continuing to do it, and the work itself was motivated not by the idea of serving up one another, for, but first and foremost, their work was qualified by a love for His name. It was qualified by a love for God. So why is it that Christians are self-giving? Why is it that Christians are self-sacrificing? Because they have a love for God, first and foremost. That's the highest priority. You cannot have a greater priority or a higher motivation than a love for God for serving God. Anything else, any other motivation, falls short of a right motivation. I want you to see this idea of love for God. It, it actually goes against the grain of so much of what we're told today of when people say, I love God. I think a lot of people would say they love God, but they don't love God according to a biblical definition of a love for God. It's not characterized by a feeling one has for God. It's not an emotion that someone has it's, it's not someone just merely saying that they, they love God and, it, and they get the, the goosebumps whenever they think about God. That's not what's stated here. It's not their devotion to prayer. It's not their devotion to reading the Scripture. It's not their devotion to being church. Those are all good things. Those are things that we're commanded to do, right? Those are all very important things. But that's not how their love here is, to God is shown. 
It's not by an individualized, privatized Christian religion in which they show their love to God, in other words. It's not something that they do isolated from a community. That's not how they show their love to God. And I think we have to get a grasp of that because we think we're individuals when we come to Christ and stay individuals, but rather we are individually called to be part of a corporate body of people and how we show our love to His name as a, is as a corporate body of people together. So in other words, this is we can't say their love for God is them hiding out in their prayer closet alone from the corporate body, but actually their love for God is shown in the church. Their love for God is shown by being with other believers and serving them. So you see that their love is defined according to the text in serving the saints. He says, as you still do. He says, you have shown this, which means this began. And then he says, as you still do, which means you're still doing it. You've shown love to the saints and you've continued to show love to the saints and you're still showing love to the saints. That's perseverance. That is, despite what's going on, they are still showing love to the saints. And this makes sense. What is the great command that we see in Scripture? The great command is that we shall love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. Now what's interesting about that when Jesus says that's the summarization of the entire law, what's interesting about it is loving God is distinct from loving neighbor, but Jesus teaches us, and in Hebrews it explicitly shows us, loving God and loving neighbor are inseparable. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. If you hate your neighbor, you're being disobedient to God and hate God. But if you just love your neighbor, but hate God, you really can't truly love your neighbor because you're not loving God. Then they go hand in hand with one another. Yes, they are distinct, but inseparable. So can I say that I love God if I don't love my neighbor? No, you can't say that. Jesus does not allow you to. Hebrews does not allow you to. God's Word does not allow it. God is the one who gives us instructions on how to love our neighbor. God is the one who sent His Son to love His neighbors perfectly because we are unable to love our neighbors as we should. God sent His Son to die for our neighbors And He sends His Spirit to indwell us. How could we not love our neighbors? So the first mark of a Christian is a love for God, but the second is this is connected in how that love is shown is service to the saints. That's a mark of a Christian. That is a characteristic of a Christian, is service to the saints. So what does it mean? Look at what the text says here. In serving the saints, it's the Greek verb diakoneo. You recognize or should recognize that word. The noun is diakonos, which is we get the word deacon. So it's using that, that verb 
for what deacons do. Here to say what service is. You ask the question, well, what does a deacon do? Well, the truth is, in Scripture, it never describes or gives an outline of what a deacon is supposed to do. You don't have a playbook written out that says, this is exactly what deacons do. But we know that deacon is an office in the church, and the office of the church of it, and the office is supposed to be an office of service. That's why they're called deacons. Deacons are servants. It's an official office of the church if you are a deacon to be a servant. So that means a deacon cannot be self-serving. I was really thankful for a couple of years ago, Joe did a, a tremendous job on describing the history of the deacons, and there became a period of time where deacons were actually getting paid for it and uh, became bloated in their head, became a position of prestige, so people wanted to become deacons so they could make money and prey upon the people rather than being servants of the people. Acts chapter 6 says, we, we see the, 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 the apostle says, we cannot be serving tables it's that same word, diacono, or diaconeo, excuse me. We can't be doing that. We need to actually diaconeo the word. And so it's an idea of servants and of service. That's the word that's used here. But we have to ask ourselves this question. Is this describing an office that is officially set aside in the church? No. It's describing you all. It's describing the church itself. This is not speaking of an office of one that is set aside to serve. This is speaking of what a Christian looks like. A Christian is one that serves the saints. And here's the thing. This is all connected to proof of their salvation. It's not the basis of it. It's not the cause of it. It's the result of their salvation. And they're so intimately connected here that we cannot escape the reality that a Christian necessarily does these things because they have been changed. You know, let me ask you this question. Just think of the the fruit of the Spirit for a second. And what we're called to, and we see what the fruit of the Spirit is, it's so very much relational. If anything service-wise comes out of us, can we say that is a work of our flesh? No, we, we would say it's a work of the Spirit to show love, to show patience, to show kindness, to show gentleness. That is a fruit of the Spirit. That's not a fruit of me. That's why I think we can say, and why the Bible makes it very clear, is that these good works, this service to the saints, is a necessary result of salvation. It happens because you're claiming that you have the Spirit at work in you. And if you have the Spirit at work in you, the Spirit works in you these things. We can't pat ourselves on the back, but 
Yet at the same time, we also have to know that we, we are actually, in fact, called to do these things and commanded to do these things. Paul writes in Galatians chapter uh, 3 or for 5, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're actually commanded to serve one another. We're commanded to live in this way before God. Not only is it a necessary consequence, but we're also commanded to do it. So does it, does it matter how we live? And to ask it another way, does it matter to God how we live? Well, think of what God says in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and, to wit- and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's called the purity of religion, an undefiled religion. So does it matter how we live before God and how do we live within a congregation? And if their love or their motivation was a, was a love for God's name, what motivated them manifested itself towards others. And if that's true, that means that there's an aspect of this that we have to say is observable. It's observable. Now, we don't do things so that people see them, right? That would be the wrong motivation. What's our motivation according to the text? A love for His name. Not to be seen, not to pat ourselves on the back, but a love for His name. But that doesn't take away from the fact that these things are observable because they're observable here, and thus they are a testimony to faith. So, Our changed life in Christ is actually a testimony of our faith that's shown in the service of the saints. This is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by what? This love for one another... By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, when I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, when Paul's writing this out, he's just simply saying what Jesus said would be obvious. You show this love for one another, and that's a testimony to your faith. It's a testimony of your faith. It's a fruit of salvation. And it's such a fruit of salvation. I want you to notice that if it's lacking, Jesus actually warns of judgment when it's not there. This is why we see this as a, a mark of Christians. And when it's absent, notice what Jesus says about this. You know the verse in Matthew 25 And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. In other words, when Jesus says, my brothers, he's speaking of fellow Christians. How you treated one another's, you did it to me. Our treatment of one another in the church is a demonstration of our treatment of Christ. Christ. 
If we treat others poorly in the church, we're not just treating them poorly, but ultimately we're treating Christ poorly. Now notice what Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, there is that judgment that comes with that, that that is lacking. It is such an intimate part of what it means to be a Christian. When it's not there, there's a good chance that someone may not be a Christian. Because Jesus explicitly says, you did not treat your brothers as you should have, and thus away from me. You know what is interesting? In, in seminary, one of my professors in, in, in my missions class pointed this out, and it's never left me, even though it told me almost 10 years ago. He pointed out the connection to what Jesus says in Matthew 25 to Matthew 10. And we won't read all of Matthew chapter 10, but Jesus sends out the 12 then in Matthew 10, two by two. And he says, when you go to a town, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to do. But people will give these things to you. And if they don't give them to you, leave the town. He brought out the point this is that actually... Matthew 25 applies to those that did not help the missionaries that were sent out. Those were the brothers that were not helped out. So in other words, part of our treatment to one another, not only is it a testimony of Christ's love for us and that we are His disciples, it is also part of God's means of seeing the gospel reach all nations. I would say that's an intricate part of our salvation. It's a result, not a cause. But it flows forth from a changed life. And this letter, it was written to Jewish Christians. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. And this set of verses communicates something very important to us. That despite their temptations, despite their struggles despite possible persecution coming their way, what would they look like? Faithful. They remained faithful through it all. Let me ask you this question. Is that a work of the Spirit or is that a work of the flesh in their life? It's a work of the Spirit in their life. Now I know I've belabored this point. So let me just summarize. A true mark of a Christian is love for God's name, and that love for God's name is demonstrated in our service to the saints. How we treat one another in the church matters. Verse 11 gives us a third mark, and that is a Christian is full of assurance. He goes on to say, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And so a desire of Paul is that they would continue in this path, that they would persevere, and that they would have a full assurance. And his wish is that they would show an earnestness for these things. That is, that an earnestness is to be excited to do something, to, to have a fervor for something, to be eager to accomplish it, to be excited about it. It's a readiness to expend energy towards something, to have care, to put forth effort in these things, and that contributes to having a full assurance. 
full assurance is to be completely certain about the truth. To have assurance of one's salvation is to know that one is saved. As the confession, the London Confession of Faith says this, believers in the Lord Jesus say, may have in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and they may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God which hope shall never make them ashamed. Confessionally, we believe that the Bible teaches that you can have a full assurance of faith. This is why the letter of 1 John is all about the assurance of the faith. We see in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, by this we know we have intimate knowledge that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. We believe in an assurance of, of faith. We believe that you can have an assurance of faith, that you can know that you know. And this assurance is to be a means of hope in our life all the way to the end. And there's a connection here to the previous Verse, our manner of life is a means to assurance. Now, we have to be very careful here. If your assurance is resting on your good works, you'll never have assurance. If your assurance rests on how good you are, you will never be assured. You will always lack assurance. And so I want to just quote the confession one more time, what it says. This is certainly not bare conjecture. It's not probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope. Your assurance and your good works are fallible hope. How you live your life is fallible hope. That's not what we base our salvation on. But rather, as the confession says, Our assurance of faith is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the Scripture. So how do you have assurance when you doubt your faith, when you doubt whether you're saved? You just look to the blood of Christ that has covered you. That's where your assurance lies. But yet, we also see, and this is in the confession referencing Romans 8.15, it says this, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit. In other words, there's an inward testimony of the Spirit in our lives, as Romans 8.15 says, that the Spirit testifies that we are truly sons of God. The confession goes on to say, out of assurance, much like out of salvation, comes duties of obedience. The proper fruits of this assurance. In other words, the ground of our assurance is not our good works. The ground of our assurance is not even our love for God. Because how can you love God enough? Do you love God enough as you're called to? That would be a very fallible assurance if you based your assurance of faith upon your love. That's not the grounds of our assurance. Christ's blood and righteousness is. But nonetheless, what we see here, and I think the confession is very helpful in summarizing what Scripture teaches. If I have assurance of faith, I actually care about my life and how I live. But if I don't have that assurance of faith, what does it matter? I will do things motivated by what I may gain, or I might not even care about them. You see here, our salvation is directly related 
to our assurance. And what's directly related to that is that we actually look like Christians. The person that doesn't look like a Christian has no assurance of faith. But the one that has demonstrably been changed by the Spirit is going to have a greater assurance of faith. So, here's the big picture. Salvation results in good works, and good works are part of our assurance. What does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tell us? You are saved as God's workmanship and created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. God saves you for the purpose of good works. The good works didn't save you, but because Christ did save you, it results in good works. And Paul says, I want this to remain strong in you until the end. I want to be this your abiding and remaining hope. And this is all directly related to our personal growth. But there's, a, there's another aspect we should see here. Paul has a desire that he will see this in the saints. So we should actually have a desire that we will see this in the saints as well then. I know that you probably desire to grow in the faith. I hope you have a desire to grow in the faith. That is God giving you the desires of your heart, by the way, if you have a desire to grow in the faith. But what we capture here in Scripture is that someone else actually cares about your desire to grow in the faith. And so we must have a desire to see our brothers and our sisters grow in the faith. And guess what God has done? He has given us a means to seeing growth in our fellow brothers and sisters. It's called discipleship. It's called being a Titus chapter 2 church. Where the older saints are pouring into the younger saints. That we are to spur one another on in the faith. That we're to greet one another with psalms and hymns and other spiritual songs. That we are to be growing together. Meaning this is that we have to have an active dedication to others and their process of sanctification and growth. Not only being worried about what I have going on, but being worried about and concerned about the growth of others. And you know what is awesome about that is the beauty of desiring to see others grow in the faith is when you desire to see others grow in the faith, guess what happens to you? You grow in the faith too. You can't not grow in the faith when you're actively discipling someone. And so we have the exhortation in this and coming in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. That's lazy. All these things he desires of them so that they will not become dull. And specifically this phrase, not to be sluggish, it's it's like standing on a cliff and you're about ready to fall over it. He says, don't become like that. And as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews so far, is we either grow or or we don't. And if we don't grow, that's because the Spirit's not at work in us. Let me give you one final mark of the Christian. The final mark of a Christian is imitation. You'll notice after it says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, it might seem like a strange mark, but it's actually quite 
a common theme in Scripture. You think of Leviticus 11, verse 44, to be holy as God is holy. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians says that we are to be imitators of God. Paul says, be an imitator of me. We're called to imitate. Specific imitation is those that have come before us and persevered in the faith. And this is a foreshadowing of what's to come in chapter 11 where we see the hall of faith. We see all those faithful people that came before us and we see their example of faith. But here we're called to an imitation of them. We're to look to those that preceded us those that were dealt setbacks in life, those that were going through struggles and discouragement and faced suffering, but yet they persevered through it. We're called to look back upon them and to imitate them. Those that inherited the rest that is promised to them through living a difficult life. Actually, when we look back upon them, It encourages us to go forward. This morning, Tom was talking about Martin Luther in Sunday school. And I can't but hear Martin Luther's name and get excited. He was standing against the whole world. There was a standing death warrant upon him that if you saw Martin Luther, you can kill him. But yet he never ceased in proclaiming the gospel. That gets me excited that he persevered through suffering, through threatening of his life. You see, the faithful that come before us are a means of encouragement for us because they received the promises. They have inherited the promises that are stated here. Let me ask you this morning, what has God promised you? Well, I'll tell you, if you're in Christ, He has promised you a new heavens and a new earth. He's promised you a future glorious body. He has promised you in the new heavens and the new earth that you will be without pain, without tears, without sin, that you will be in the presence of Christ. And why is that that He promised that to you? Because you earned it? Because you loved God enough? Because you served the saints enough? Because you imitated Paul enough? No. He promised that because He gave you His grace and you responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who has given you His righteousness. And now the Father looks upon you and says, You're mine. Here are your promises. Not only right now in this life, but a future realization of those promises. This is why the Scripture calls them beloved. Because they are beloved by God because of the righteousness of Christ in them. That is ours as well if you're in Christ this morning. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and have called upon His name, those promises are yours as well. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, those promises are not for you. And this is why Jesus calls all to come unto Him, to trust in His name, to believe upon Him, that they might be the righteousness of God through faith, not by works. That is available for all to inherit the promises to be called beloved of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your gospel that in it we are saved. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and by his shed blood we have forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Father, that you are so gracious and kind to us. Not only do you save us, but you sanctify us and 
continue the process of sanctification in our life. Father, we pray that your word would be working in our hearts this morning, that your spirit would be working in us, that we would be motivated by a love for your name, that we would desire to serve the saints, that we would look at those that came before us and be encouraged by them and even imitate their faith and their perseverance in difficult times. It's only by your grace that this is possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.